Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So our show has a general rule of thumb. We've talked, we've alluded to it relatively recently. Uh, When it comes to the more recent past... For the most part, we talk about history that's roughly, very roughly, the 1960s and earlier. Yeah. Yeah, we want to focus on things that a chunk of our listeners did not personally live through and have individual memories of. Uh, and it also helps us to focus a little farther in the past uh, because we're able to take a broader perspective a lot of the time and find multiple perspectives on things so that we can compare those and get a like a broader picture of what actually happened. Um, our line in the sand is farther back, but it's very similar reasons to the Ask Historians subreddit, which has a 20-year rule about what's acceptable to ask about in the subreddit. Uh, that is a great resource, by the way, which we're going to link to in the show notes. So even though our line in the sand is farther back, it's very similar to reason- the reasoning to how they frame it. Uh, sometimes, though, we get a lot of requests for something that is from more recent history, but not necessarily something that listeners are overwhelmingly likely to personally remember. And that's the case for what we are talking about today. In 1985, following a lengthy standoff, the Philadelphia police bombed a residential building that was home to the MOVE organization. This caused a fire that burned down more than 60 homes and 11 people were killed. I had never heard of this until its 30th anniversary in 2015 got a lot of mainstream media coverage. And that coverage prompted a lot of requests for an episode, which we mostly responded to by saying it's a little more recent than we normally talk about. Mm -hmm. But then a year later, we got another wave of requests for an episode. So uh, anticipating another wave in the anniversary of this year, we decided to put it on the calendar. Uh, and even though uh, folks who grew up in Philadelphia or who have studied or been part of relevant fields of study and social movements and that sort of thing uh, are likely to remember this, I never heard of this has been a common enough refrain in May for the last couple of years that it seems uh, worth it to devote an episode. Yeah. Articles about the move bombing since its 30th anniversary have often pigeonholed the organization as a black liberation group or a black power group. But this is at best a partial description. While the organization is revolutionary and its members are and have been predominantly black, the move organization overlaps with other movements and philosophies as well, sometimes in ways that can seem really contradictory. Articles from past decades are far more likely to call MOVE a back-to-nature, primitivist, or counterculture group. To be clear, it is not at all unusual for an organization that's connected to racial justice or any social issue, really, to have a platform that touches on other issues that might not seem to be related at first glance. Sometimes this is because issues are interconnected in a way that doesn't immediately seem obvious, but the MOVE organization's philosophies are disparate enough that they're often described in words like uncategorizable, with some commentators going so far as to suggest that it is a deliberate effort to be hard to pin down. 
Even the name MOVE, which is normally written in all caps, doesn't stand for anything, even though it is written that way. And a lot of these contradictory philosophies and practices were at the root of ongoing disputes between MOVE and its Philadelphia neighbors in the 1970s and 1980s. Part of MOVE's general philosophy is that the system, which encompasses industry, big business, the government, the military, etc., is toxic. It's a corrupting, abusive force that is poisoning the planet and society in pursuit of money. Life, on the other hand, is sacred. God and nature are the sources of life, and the natural law which governs all life is universally applicable to everyone. Another core belief among MOVE members is that by revolutionizing themselves through the guidelines left by founder John Africa, they can revolutionize the world and ultimately end problems like homelessness, racism, drug addiction, HIV, and crime. This personal revolution has some parallels with the Back to Nature movement. Members eat raw food. They avoid drugs and alcohol. They advocate for things like animal rights and clean air and water. Technology is seen as harmful, with members going so far as to use wood stoves for heat and to break up the sidewalk adjacent to their home to restore the connection to the land. Members also live collectively in communal living situations, all adopting the surname Africa after John Africa. Based on this focus on the sanctity of life, it may seem that the next logical step is nonviolence. But the MOVE organization also believes in self-defense, seeing it as a basic human right and part of the natural law. Archival footage from the documentary Let the Fire Burn shows members practicing physical self-defense in the yard and patrolling around their headquarters with firearms. And the organization's conflicts with law enforcement over the years have, more than once, stemmed in part from the presence or the believed presence of weapons in the MOVE compound. Law enforcement often approached those conflicts under the assumption that the members of MOVE were in fact heavily armed. Breaking up sidewalks and patrolling with weapons would have easily been enough to cause a problem between MOVE and the neighbors, but this was really just the tip of the iceberg. MOVE believes that hair should be left in its natural state, uncut and uncombed, and it discourages any kind of chemical for cleaning bodies and clothing. And the idea of respect for all animal life includes feeding rats and stray animals. Uncontained compost piles at the property in the 70s and 80s were essentially just mounds of garbage. And all of this led to complaints from neighbors about hygiene, odors, and vermin. Moves principles for raising children, which includes feeding only raw food and not allowing toys and encouraging nudity, also led to reports of child neglect. Adding another layer, MOVE members physically fortified two different homes in Philadelphia, boarding over windows, erecting fences, and in one case, building a bunker on the roof. They also played political lectures and other statements through loudspeakers on the exterior of the properties. Since part of the core philosophy was that it could take profane language to fight a profane system, what came over those loudspeakers uh, was often filled with obscenities. All of this combined meant that even neighbors who agreed with MOVE's core philosophies about the toxicity of the system and the sanctity of life often did not like having them in their neighborhood. People understandably didn't want to live next to a boarded-up bunker with profanity spewing out of the loudspeakers, which was being patrolled by people with long dreadlocks carrying what appeared to be functional rifles and shotguns. 
Families didn't want their children playing outside when the neighborhood was constantly home to a yard full of trash, profane rants, people brandishing guns, and as time went on, constant police activity. Compounding things even further was that MOVE members often took an aggressively confrontational stance in interactions with police and neighbors. We mentioned earlier that several commentators have theorized that MOVE's philosophy is purposely hard to define. Similarly, MOVE's Philadelphia neighbors in the 70s and 80s theorized that they were being deliberately antagonizing. And in yet another complicating factor... The social climate of the time meant that a lot of neighbors also didn't want to involve police, no matter how antagonizing the situation. And this pitted neighborhood factions against one another when it came to how to deal with MOVE. The years of confrontational relationships between MOVE and police ultimately led to a shootout in 1978, and that shootout became a precursor for the 1985 bombing. We will talk about how after a quick sponsor break. In the mid-1970s, MOVE, which had been established earlier that decade, moved into a Victorian-style home in Powelton Village, Philadelphia. In general, this was a politically tense time, both nationally and locally. The United States' involvement in the Vietnam War had been hugely divisive, and Philadelphia's mayor, Frank Rizzo, had previously been the police commissioner. He had run on a law-and-order platform. Philadelphia police had developed a reputation for unnecessary force and for cracking down on black neighborhoods a lot harder than on white neighborhoods. This was so much so that in 1979, so a year after the shootout we were about to talk about, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against the city. Moves clashes with neighbors in Powelton Village began almost immediately, including monopolizing community meetings with profanity-laden rants. Complaints from neighbors led to visits from police, which led to confrontations, which led to arrests. As members of MOVE wound up being convicted of a number of offenses and incarcerated, the organization became even more aggressive, basically trying to use these confrontations to draw attention to their efforts to get their incarcerated members released. In May of 1977, after more than a year of this cycle of escalations and calls to police, MOVE members were spotted on the barricaded porch of the home, wearing military-style clothing and carrying weapons. Neighbors called the police, and the police surrounded the house. This seemed like it was the last straw from the police point of view. They insisted that they would maintain a constant presence at the move house and arrest anyone who left it, and they would charge whoever left the house with firearm infractions and incitements to riot. A lot of the neighbors, of course, did not like the idea of the police keeping a home in their neighborhood surrounded, regardless of whether they sympathized with move or not and they started trying to negotiate. Father Paul Washington, a minister, and Joel Todd, an attorney, were each involved with both formal and informal negotiations with MOVE and the Philadelphia police to try to bring about a peaceful resolution. These negotiations stretched on for months, and in this whole time, there was a lot of police activity in the neighborhood and a lot of altercations, and eventually... Todd got MOVE and the police to mutually agree that MOVE members would submit to an orderly arrest process. They would cycle through the residents of the house so that there was always somebody at home to look after the children and feed the animals. 
Once people were arrested, they would be released without having to post bail, although Move wanted a written guarantee of this and the city would only provide a verbal one. Move also agreed to allow a health and weapons inspection of the premises. The one point that they absolutely could not agree on was that Move would ultimately vacate the home. And even though Move and the city had come to an agreement on several points, Move was acutely aware that none of them had to do with what was, for them, the most important issue. That was getting their incarcerated members, who they referred to as political prisoners, out of prison. But then, a member of Move heard that one of their incarcerated members had been beaten in prison. Move cut off all negotiations, and in response, the Philadelphia Police Department established a blockade around the house, including cutting off the utilities. This blockade was meant to keep people from both leaving and coming in, and it stayed in place for more than 50 days. Now at a total impasse, with sympathetic neighbors smuggling food and water into the Move house, supporters of Move recruited civil rights activist Walt Palmer, the Citywide Coalition for Human Rights, and civil rights attorney Oscar Gaskins to work on Move's behalf. Combined, Palmer, Gaskins, and the Citywide Coalition for Human Rights had far more power and clout than Move had on its own. Gaskins often appeared in court on MOVE members' behalf to keep their confrontational manner and use of profanity from derailing the proceedings. Gaskins negotiated an appeal for the imprisoned MOVE members, with them being released on their own recognizance to await their new trials. He also renegotiated the arrests and inspections that had previously been on the table. And he finally got MOVE to agree to vacate the Powelton Village home within 90 days. For the most part, Move followed through on what was agreed upon during these negotiations. This included the sanitation and weapons inspections. The only weapons found on the property at the time were not capable of being fired. The one biggest sticking point was the agreement to vacate the premises. It was, unsurprisingly, very difficult for Move to find another place to live. A number of people looked for more rural property, which seemed to be a better home for the organization than the city was. Probably would not cause as much of an issue to be out in the country (laughs) with their particular sort of back-to-nature practices than in the city in very close quarters with their neighbors. Eventually, a farmer in New Jersey offered to donate farmland, but at some point, Move got the impression that he was planning to use them for slave labor. And after Move refused his offer, all attempts to find a new location totally broke down. So that 90-day window to vacate the house came and went. A judge ruled that Move was in violation of their agreement, and police came to evict them on August 8, 1978. And even though that weapons inspection had found only inoperable weapons in the move house, the eviction turned into a gunfight. It's unclear who fired first, but Officer James Ramp was killed. Move would later maintain that it had been a case of friendly fire and that Philadelphia police had covered it up. After a lengthy exchange of gunfire, as members of Move were finally surrendering, three police officers hit, kicked, and beat MOVE member Delbert Africa. Most of this beating was both caught on camera and televised. 
Philadelphia delayed releasing the names of the three officers for nearly a year. And once the case finally came to trial, the judge issued a directed verdict of acquittal just before the jury was to come back from its deliberations. Nine members of MOVE were convicted of various crimes, including conspiracy and third-degree murder in the shooting death of Officer Ramp. They had all represented themselves in the proceedings before the judge had them removed for disruptive behavior. Their sentences ranged from 30 to 100 years in prison. Two of those people have died in prison, but the other seven are still incarcerated as of this recording in May of 2017. The city of Philadelphia tore down the move house two hours after the eviction and shootout took place. This incident shaped how Move and the Philadelphia police worked with one another from this point on. And we're going to talk about that after we first pause for a little sponsor break. In the early 1980s, members of Move moved into a row house at 6221 Osage Avenue. This was in a middle-class, predominantly black neighborhood in West Philadelphia. The house belonged to John Africa's sister. By this point, the Philadelphia police and MOVE each had a huge amount of distrust and dislike of one another. Each felt that the other could not be trusted to negotiate in good faith or to keep the terms of any agreement. MOVE argued that the police and the city were unfairly targeting them because of their race. The police felt that MOVE was a cult full of unstable, dangerous people whose default mode of communication was shrieking obscenities. Uh, There's been a lot of analysis of the the whole pattern of arrests of of move and of generally policing in Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s and it seems simultaneously absolutely true yes they were being targeted more because of racism also the style of constantly confronting people with obscenities was making it worse <laughs> like those things simultaneously true Even though, as an organization, MOVE had really started to become embittered and hostile toward the Philadelphia government and the police, at this point they also had become hopeful that they were going to have a more sympathetic ear within that government. Because on January 2nd, 1984, Wilson Good had become Philadelphia's first black mayor. MOVE hoped that he would help them get their incarcerated members out of jail, and that included the MOVE 9, which was their name for the people who had been imprisoned in the death of Officer James Ramp. They also hoped that the mayor would get the city to allow what they viewed as their free expression of their religious beliefs, which was essentially a lot of the stuff that was causing so many problems within their neighborhoods. The city, however, at first wanted to avoid getting directly involved. So the situation on Osage Avenue played out much like it had in Powelton Village. Members of MOVE fortified the house with boards and built a bunker on the roof. They collected animals and they fed strays. They broadcast obscene messages from loudspeakers and patrolled with what appeared to be functioning firearms. There are lots of... uh photos and archival footage and things like that of this neighborhood before the bombing happened. And it really is startling. Like the camera will pan down this row of very neat, well-kept, beautifully maintained row houses where it's clear that like families of middle-class people live. And then all of a sudden it is a boarded up, fortified uh, structure with a bunker on the roof. And it was, it's very jarring when you uh, look at it. 
So, neighbors were making repeated complaints about the noise and the weapons and sanitation and the bunker on the roof and the welfare of the children living in the house. So police came and at times made individual arrests, but no action was taken by the city to address the root situation, which was that this fortified group of apparently armed people were causing lots of distress among their neighbors. Finally, fed-up neighbors went to the state government for help. This put pressure on the city to move and quickly, and they put together a plan to evict the entire group. The neighborhood in the vicinity of the move house on Osage Avenue was evacuated on Mother's Day 1985, and residents were told not to return for 24 hours. Utilities were shut off, and police established a perimeter around the home. The premise for the police being there was to serve four members of MOVE with warrants for their arrest. And to do this, they had arrived with nearly 500 police officers in SWAT gear. They were armed with machine guns and also had an anti-tank gun. They had a helicopter that was on loan from the state police and a supply of explosives that had been provided by the FBI. At 5.35 a.m. on May 13, 1985, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Gregor Sambor announced over a bullhorn, Attention, move. This is America. You must obey the laws of the United States. Move was then given 15 minutes to come out of the house. They vehemently refused. At 5.50 a.m., the Philadelphia Fire Department began spraying the bunker on top of the home with water. Sources contradict on whether part of the goal was to try to use the hoses to knock the bunker down. Uh, But law enforcement was very focused on this bunker because it gave Move a potential vantage point for an ambush. They were definitely, however, using the water from the hoses to increase the humidity inside of the house, which would make tear gas more effective. As all of this was going on, Other officers went into the adjacent homes. This was a row house with, you know, adjoining walls to try to knock holes into the walls to get into the move house. The exchange of gunfire began at around 6 a.m. By the end of the day, the police would fire more than 10,000 rounds of ammunition into the move house. By mid-morning, the police had used multiple explosive devices to try to get into the house and had used tear gas to try to force the people that were inside out, and none of it had worked. They kept breaking through walls and then finding, like, fortifications under the walls, that type of thing. So by noon, the situation had turned into a stalemate. Police decided to withdraw and regroup and work out a new plan. And around four in the afternoon, as the force was trying to figure out how to proceed, someone, and sources contradict on who, suggested that they drop a bomb from a helicopter to try to destroy the bunker. At about 5 p.m., Mayor Good approved the use of explosives on the move house. At 527, police dropped a satchel filled with four pounds of plastic explosive on a 45-second fuse from the police helicopter onto the roof of 6221 Osage Avenue. Although it caused an explosion that reverberated throughout the neighborhood, the bunker was left standing. However, about 20 minutes after the bomb had been dropped, it became clear that the roof of 6221 Osage Avenue was on fire. A little after 6 p.m., Police Commissioner Sambor and Fire Commissioner William C. Richmond agreed to let the fire burn in the hope that it would frighten everyone out of the home. 
Within minutes, though, the fire started to spread to neighboring houses in the row. Only two people escaped the burning move house, Ramona Africa and Michael Moses Ward, then known as Birdie Africa. Ramona Africa was later convicted of riot and conspiracy and served seven years in prison. Michael Ward, whose mother was killed this day, was taken into his father's custody. He was 13 years old when this happened. Six adults, including John Africa, were killed on May 13th, along with five children between the ages of 7 and 13. Ramona Africa has maintained that other members of MOVE tried to leave the burning home and were forced back by police gunfire. Police have maintained that members of MOVE who were seen trying to leave turned back into the fire for reasons that are unclear, that perhaps they wanted to regroup or they had decided to go back into the home to die. The fire that began to spread, and there was a deliberate decision to allow it to burn to try to force people out of the house, was the worst residential fire in Philadelphia history. More than 60 homes were destroyed, and more than 250 people were made homeless. Since the neighborhood had been evacuated with an order to stay away for 24 hours, most of the residents had only a few of their belongings with them when the fire started, and they lost virtually everything. This would have been a newsworthy event on its own, but by this point, MOVE had a huge reputation in all of Philadelphia, so multiple news crews were on the scene, and much of what happened on May 13th was broadcast live on television. The mayor gave an address on May 13th saying, quote, As mayor of this city, I accept full and total responsibility. He would continue to do that repeatedly. He consistently accepted the blame for what had happened. When he ran for re-election a few years later, this, of course, was a huge part of his opponent's campaign, but his opponent was Frank Rizzo, who we mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, and uh, Wilson Good defeated his opponent by a narrow margin. In the immediate aftermath of this particular incident, though, He convened the Philadelphia Special Investigation Commission, which held five weeks of public hearings. A second investigation by a grand jury was convened on May 15th of 1986. And both of these investigations agreed that the bombing had been woefully negligent and reckless. The grand jury report issued on May 3rd of 1988 called it, quote, an epic of governmental incompetence. The incompetence, unfortunately, continued in the rebuilding of the homes that were destroyed in the fire. The rebuilding effort was shoddy and mismanaged, and in 1987, two contractors were charged and convicted of stealing more than $200,000 of the funds that had been earmarked for that redevelopment. The two contractors and Ramona Africa are the only people convicted of any crime in conjunction with the MOVE bombing. Estimates are all over the place, but the loss of property, the original rebuilding effort, and the years of repairs that followed that shoddy and mismanaged construction had a total cost in the tens of millions of dollars. The city of Philadelphia was also ordered to pay a total of $1.5 million in damages to Ramona Africa and Michael Ward in 1996. Ramona Africa is still living, and Michael Ward died in 2013 at the age of 41, apparently due to an accidental drowning while on vacation. 
In 2000, 15 years after the bombing and the fire, the Philadelphia Redevelopment Authority decided it would be too expensive to continue to try to fix the ongoing problems from the earlier poor quality rebuilding. They bought out many of the area's remaining homeowners, offering first $70,000 and then $150,000 to leave the area or to release the city from any liability for further repairs. By that point, many of the houses had been sitting boarded up and padlocked for years. In April 2017, the city of Philadelphia announced that a company called AJR Endeavors had been selected to oversee the redevelopment of 36 houses in the neighborhood of Osage Avenue with a projected cost of about $3.2 million, with some of that uh, cost also being dedicated to funds for a public work of art in the neighborhood. A historical marker was also scheduled for placement in 2017. So all of the rebuilding from this massive, massive destruction is like still continuing today. Like this neighborhood is still affected today. And people who lost their homes in the fire, who were totally innocent bystanders in all of this, like that folks are still living today. There's been a lot of analysis of the opinion or not the opinion, the decision to let the fire burn, and how that was obviously a catastrophically terrible decision. So catastrophically bad that it actually spawned conspiracy theories from people who were like, you know what I think they were trying to do was burn down that neighborhood so they could take it over all of it and gentrify it. Like, that obviously didn't work out if that was part of the covert plan because the rebuilding was such so terribly constructed and then led to millions of dollars more repairs. But like, especially in that part of Philadelphia, like the effects of this event from 1985 are still continuing today. I'm, I'm still back on, uh, I, I can't help but wonder what it must have been like for neighbors to basically be told by police, Hey, evacuate your home. Your neighborhood is going to become a war zone. Yeah. Well, and there are, uh, because the whole thing played out on live television, like you see, you can see in archival footage and in, uh, the documentary, Let the Fire Burn that we referenced earlier in the show, like you see people either seeing on television or coming back to the neighborhood and seeing what was happening and people make comparisons to Vietnam and how it seems like a war zone. Um, there's a scene where John Africa's sister, uh, whose name I unfortunately didn't write down in, in my notes. She's no longer affiliated with Move from what I understand. So I didn't really get as much into that part, but there is footage of her arriving back in the neighborhood and seeing what is going on and just being distraught. Uh, obviously it was a, just a horrifying event for everybody who was present that day. A lot of whom, uh, are still living. Uh, and then, of course, the lo- loss of life, including a lot of children during the fire and the shootout itself. What's the listener mail situation like? More depressing? No, it's not. <laughs> no, I would not. I would not call it depressing. But it is about one of our more uh, serious episodes we've done lately, which was on the Cato Street com- conspiracy. Uh, one of the things that came up in that episode was that uh, two different sources had said completely contradictory things about a previous trial that uh, Arthur Thistlewood had been involved in. So this is from Megan. It just came in this morning. It was very well timed. <laughs> it came in a few hours before we recorded this episode. And Megan says, 
Longtime listener, first time uh, caller, emailer, anywho, I was listening to your episode on the Cato Street conspiracy on my walk this morning when you mentioned that it was unclear what had happened in the 1817 case because of conflicting published information, which is fair enough as that case is hard to find in publicly available form. Luckily, I am an ex-law librarian, and my first law job was at one of the inns of courts in London, where finding really old and obscure cases was about 70% of my day as a trainee librarian, and I still have access now uh, as a systems librarian in academia to some of those resources. So... Rex versus Thistlewood and others was a series of trials held in front of the King's Bench with a jury in 1817. And the whole thing is a fairly excruciatingly tedious read, but basically after the jury found James Watson the Elder not guilty of the charges laid upon him of treason, etc., in his trial, which was the first one heard, the Attorney General decided that they would not continue to press the same charges against Thistlewood, Preston, and Hooper, as this was announced when the court was assembled the following morning, June 17th, 1817, for their trials. So the jury declared them not guilty and discharged them. So they were acquitted under English common law by a jury with a not guilty verdict. But that was usual practice for a case where charges were withdrawn. So both of the things I had said that they were acquitted and that the charges were withdrawn were basically simultaneously true. To get back to the letter, always enjoy the podcast and thank you for giving me the chance to stretch some old case law finding skills. Hope it is useful and or interesting. Obviously, RV Thistlewood 1820 is more important piece of case law because that is where they found they were found guilty of high treason, etc., and is still cited frequently today. I also found Thistlewood's Chancery case in regards to the bankrupt buyer slash annuity and his inheritance, etc. Megan. Uh, and then she sent a, a link to a, a, a Google book, ebook, um, of a trial record. So thank you so much, Megan, number one, for answering that question, because I was genuinely wondering what was correct <laughs> when it seemed like two things said the opposite. Number two, shout out to librarians. You know it. Librarians are great. In addition to this great email, uh, one of the sources uh, for today's episode was a book that I was only able to get thanks to a librarian. <laughs> so, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest and Instagram at History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and find uh, information about just about anything your heart desires. And you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode ever, and we have uh, show notes of the episodes that Holly and I have worked on. Those notes are now part of the actual podcast player page, so everything is all in one place. And as we said earlier, we will put in a note to, or a link to the uh, subreddit of Ask Historians, which is an awesome place to add or to ask great questions and have historians and other knowledgeable people answer them. Um, one of the ones I saw this morning, which had a great answer, was, was it really fun to stay at the YMCA? <laughs> I, I love whoever asked that question, and I love the person who wrote the wonderful answer that uh, I saw over there this morning. So, you can do all that, a whole lot more, at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 